Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Welcome, Primal Blueprint listeners. This is your host, Lindsay Taylor, and I am so excited to bring you guys our guest for today. Today, we're going to be talking to Megan Roberts, who's the scientific director of Nourish Balance Thrive, which is an online-based company using advanced biochemical testing to optimize performance in athletes. She received her undergraduate degree in exercise biology and her master's degree in nutritional biology from UC Davis. Her graduate work focused on the effects of low-carbohydrate ketogenic diets on longevity and health span in mice. She currently lives in Colorado and in her free time enjoys reading and all outdoor activities. Uh, Megan and I just recently met in person for the first time at Chris Kresser's summit for his new book, Unconventional Medicine. And I have to tell you guys, I'm so excited about what they're doing over at Nourish, Balance, Thrive, and I'm thrilled to talk to her today. So welcome, Megan. Thanks, Lindsay. It's great to be here. So why don't we just start out for our listeners who somehow don't know what Nourish Balance Thrive is doing. I just was podcasting the other day with your colleague, Chris Kelly, and I just told him, and I'm going to just reiterate to you that I'm a massive fan of what you guys are doing over at Nourish Balance Thrive. I think you guys are just absolutely on the cutting edge of health and helping athletes achieve their maximum health and performance. So can you just tell us what you guys are doing over there? Yeah, sure. Um, so Nourish Balance Thrive is is basically an online health coaching company, um, and we work with people to um, engineer optimal health, um, peak performance, and of course, we're also um, focused on happiness as well. Mm-hmm. And so you guys would describe yourselves as functional medicine, right? You guys are in the functional medicine space? Um, yeah, yeah, I would say so. So what happens like if an athlete comes to you, can you just briefly tell us like how you're helping people? Sure. So we have something called the elite performance program. Um, and basically, um, that's a year long program that people can sign up for. And, um, it involves a bunch of, um, uh, advanced kind of bio, uh, biochemical testing, um, and then health coaching as well. Um, and then retesting and, um, it's just, it's an awesome year of kind of, uh, helping people get to, um, achieve optimal health and performance in their endeavor of choice. So we, we do work with a lot of athletes, but really, um, we work with anyone who wants to, um, kind of achieve those things. And just for our listeners, um, to know our own Brad Kearns has been working with you guys for a couple months now trying to work on his own health. And, you know, if you don't know Brad, Brad has a bunch of uh, new performance goals of his own. He's super into speed golf, and now he has this high jump ambition that he'll tell you all about. And um, he has loved working with you guys, and you guys have really helped him a lot in a few months. Oh, great, great. I'm really glad to hear that. So before we get into kind of the nitty-gritty of your work with the keto diet, I'm actually interested to hear, so you were in academia, right? So you were a graduate student at UC Davis working in the lab and conducting all this research. And now you've made the leap to Nourish, Balance, Thrive. So um, first of all, tell us a little bit more about what your role is there. And then kind of, I'm interested to hear about that kind of period in your life where you were making the decision to, at least for a while, step outside of academia and work in this more hands-on, you know, private sector type job and, and what that's been like for you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as far as my role at Nourish, Balance, Thrive, um, I'm the scientific director, so I get to spend half of my time researching and writing um, to basically promote scientific literacy and translate uh, the science into something that's understandable and actionable for the the general population uh, with no science background. And then the other half of my time is spent doing health coaching. Um, So I get to kind of um, marry these these two things that I love as far as the research and then also the the more clinical side and, and working with people. It sounds like an ideal job, just the the idea that if you love science, you can spend a lot of your time still reading and keeping up with the science, but then also being a teacher and also a coach. It's like an amazing position that you've gotten carved out for yourself there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm super stoked about uh, what I'm currently doing. And just to, to kind of give you a little bit of background, you asked kind of how I went from academia to um, working with Nourish, Balance, Thrive. Um, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll, I'll kind of keep it brief here. Um, for the last handful of years, I would say 12 years, um, I've structured my life and education around going to med school. And so after doing my med school prerequisite coursework, um, 
I decided to pursue this master's degree in nutritional biology at UC Davis uh, for for many reasons, but I guess the most pertinent reason um, to this conversation is that uh, doctors really get very little, if any, education about nutrition um, and its role in health. And it still kind of seems strange to me that some people don't think twice about the food that they're putting into their bodies, and at the same time, they're so focused on the medication that they're also putting into their bodies. Um, so anyway, I knew from experience uh, that food could truly be medicine, um, and I wanted to have the knowledge to use nutrition um, to complement more of a traditional medical approach as a future doctor. Um, and then kind of on, on the MBT side, I had been following uh, Chris's Nourish Balance Drive podcast pretty much since day one. And I met him and his wife at a conference while I was in school at UC Davis. Um, and we stayed in touch after I graduated. He helped me with some of my own health issues. Um, and I ended up joining the Nourish Balance Thrive team at the beginning of this year, so 2017. Um, and it's, it's like I said, been the perfect melding of my passion for the health science literature and also helping others achieve their health goals. And so I'm now I'm kind of in this limbo land um, because I've always thought that I would become a doctor, but I've truly realized that the stuff that we do at MBT really, really works for people. Um, and so, um, I, I don't really know if, if med school is going to happen anymore. Um, and kind of when, when you love what you do, um, and you're noticeably impacting the lives of other people, then, you know, dreams can kind of change. So the future is, is to be determined at this point. Yeah. I've mentioned to our readers or our listeners that we met at the Chris Kresser conference that he had recently, or I guess like the launch for his new book, Unconventional Medicine. And for listeners who haven't heard about this, um, first of all, Mark just did a podcast with Chris that came out around the time that you and I are recording, Megan. But, you know, that's the whole idea behind Chris's new, I guess, you might call it a revolution, right? Where he's looking at the current state of the medical system and saying, listen, you know, we're treating people, but we're not necessarily helping them, right? We're treating their symptoms and we're making them feel better, but are we making them healthier? And, you know, that's that's a real question that we really have to face right now. You know, are our medical schools training people in systems and giving them the knowledge that they need to actually make life changes for these people as opposed to just, you know, taking their patients and helping them feel better today, but what about tomorrow? And I think that that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about what you guys are doing over at Nourish Balance Thrive is that you are taking this completely different approach and looking at whole health and asking like what do our clients need to be better, not just feel better. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're into the sustained health um not just not just mask, masking symptoms. Well, but, one of the reasons yeah. I wanted to have you on, besides the fact that I just think that what you guys are doing is outstanding over at Nourish Balance Thrive, is that you have recently had a, a really exciting paper published that was your graduate research and how um, the ketogenic diet is operating in mice. It's called A Ketogenic Diet Extends Longevity and Health Span in Adult Mice. And it was published in the journal Cell Metabolism, which, for those of you who don't know, is a very prestigious journal. And as a former academic, I will just tell you that getting your master's work published in a huge journal like that is a massive accomplishment. I mean, it, it's just an incredible honor. And I feel like you're going to be humble about it. So I'm going to tell our <laughs> listeners like what a giant accomplishment this is and how very exciting. And also that, you know, if you're in the ketogenic world and, um, you know, care about the science, you will hear this paper is already being cited over and over. People are incredibly excited about your findings. So first of all, a million congratulations to you, Megan, on this. This is amazing. Oh, thank you very much. And I have to say that, you know, I'm the one here talking to you about this, but I was literally standing on the shoulders of giants as far as my mentors and my colleagues. Um, so it was definitely a team effort. Well, I think that this paper is just incredible. So I would really like to hear about just a little bit about how you got into researching keto in the first place. Um, just because we know that, you know, it's such a hot topic right now. Um, so kind of how you got involved in the ketogenic diet research and how you've kind of started to pick this line of research specifically. And then I'd love to hear more about the various, you know, the specifics of the paper and get into the weeds a little bit about the science. Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, um, how I got involved with the ketogenic diet was quite serendipitous. Um, I I entered into graduate school with a decent background in the ketogenic diet. Um, 
just because uh, of my exposure to it through my own research and interests at the time. And so that was about three, four years ago now. Um, and so my supervisor um, at UC Davis was interested in studying the mechanisms uh, by which calorie restriction extends lifespan, at least in, in rodent models. And a hallmark of calorie restriction is this metabolic shift from carbohydrate to fatty acid oxidation. And so what we did in my lab was set out to manipulate dietary macronutrients, namely the carbohydrates, in order to mimic this calorie restriction, but without the calorie restriction, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, and for listeners, this is what we talk about in Primal Blueprint, we talk about becoming fat adapted, right? So shifting from using carbs as your primary source of fuel just in your daily life to using fat and being an efficient fat burner. Yes, exactly. And so just for people who aren't quite familiar with it yet, explain to us how um, a ketogenic diet differs from just like a regular low carb or primal or paleo diet. Um, So the ketogenic diet is specifically uh, very low carb. Um, Again, depending athletes will probably you know, be able to, to get into a ketogenic, um, metabolic state with, with more carbs versus someone who's more sedentary, but, um, uh, just relatively, um, depending on the person, very low carb, um, moderate protein, and then very high fat versus something like primal or paleo is, is more, um, certainly lower carb than, excuse me, the standard American diet. Um, but it's, it can pretty much be macronutrient agnostic. Right, right, exactly. So in other words, that there's nothing inherently ultra low carb about eating a primal or paleo profile, right? So um, if you're familiar with Primal Blueprint and know the primal carb curve, right, you can easily be eating 150 or more grams of carbs a day from very nutrient-dense sources. And we would obviously consider that a healthy diet, but it would not be a ketogenic diet or even really an ultra-low-carb diet. So you can certainly eat primally without eating low-carb and certainly without eating ketogenically. Yes. Yeah. So were you already eating a keto diet before you started this research? I'm curious to know. So I, I wasn't at the time, no. During the research, I kind of uh, dabbled in it, um, but but I did not come into the research eating a ketogenic diet. I, I was very aware of, of the... Um, of the diet at the time though. Okay. So I'm going to ask you to come back to this whole question of, of why we use mice in research after we talk about the specifics of the study, but would you just describe the study and give us some of the kind of highlights of the findings? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, just to kind of explain the purpose of the study, um, first it was basically to determine if the shift that we talked about, um, to fatty acid oxidation from carbohydrate oxidation that we see with calorie restriction, contributes to the longevity promoting properties of calorie restriction. And also, um, what role do ketones play in that? Because you can have this metabolic fuel shift, um, with or without ketones being present, which is why we used both a low carbohydrate and a ketogenic diet in our mice. Um, and so as far as the methods are concerned, um, we used three diets, like, like I kind of alluded to, there was a control diet, which was about 65% carbohydrate. So it's a typical chow rodent diet. And then our low carbohydrate diet was 70% fat, 10% carbohydrate. And then the ketogenic diet was 90% fat, 0% carb. And the mice began the diets when they were 12 months of age. So that's about middle age for, um, uh, a, a human. And they were all eating the same calories. So the diets were isocaloric. This allowed us to study the effects of these diets independent of overweight or obesity um, because others have shown that feeding mice an ad libitum, so that's just kind of um, as much as they want, a full access to food, ketogenic diet, um, causes weight gain. And so, uh, you know, this, this kind of suggests a potential absence of the typical appetite-suppressing effect of ketosis that we see in humans. So I just want to pause for a second to summarize two things you said, or to maybe clarify two things you said for our listeners. So one is that part of the question you were trying to answer, right, was, is there something about, you know, when we know that calorie restriction contributes to longevity, and this is something we've known for a long time, is it calorie restriction that has the effects and, or can you get the same effects, you know, through different metabolic pathways and, you know, different things that are happening inside your body by just 
eating a low carbohydrate diet, which in turn makes you what we call fat adapted, right? So it shifts you to fat as a primary source of fuel. And or is there an additional benefit to eating a ketogenic diet? So not only are you low carb and a good fat burner, but now you have ketones in your system that are being generated by the liver. And now they're going around your body. And do they have some you know additional benefit in and of themselves, you know, above and beyond just being an efficient fat burner, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And I just also want to clarify for our listeners, because I know that this is a point of confusion that you had your ketogenic mice on a 90% fat, 0% carb diet, but that's not what you have to do to be ketogenic, especially as a human, right? So this is about having laboratory control over what your mice were eating. Exactly. Exactly. And one thing that I will say is it's really, really, really hard to get a rodent into ketosis. Um, <laughs> so we had to go completely cut the carbs to zero. Um, even with 10% protein, it was, you know, not, we weren't pushing ketosis as much as we could. Um, we had, we decided to keep the protein at 10% versus something like 5% for the ketogenic mice. Um, because we wanted to maintain muscle mass with, with age, um, because sarcopenia is an issue. Um, but for human, they could easily be getting, you know, 10, 15% of their calories from, from carbs, um, you know, things like non-starchy vegetable carbs and definitely still be in ketosis. Right. So for any of our listeners, like, don't be like, oh my gosh, I'm eating carbs. I'm not in ketosis. No, these are mice. You're a person. And we, like I said, we're going to come back to this question of, you know, why rodent models and how we can, um, translate them into human actionable items. But so just to clarify. Okay. So, so you have your mice, you have your three different diets, and they are living in your lab, and they're middle-aged when you start, and then what? Yeah, so we kind of had two different arms of the um, of the study. So one arm was longevity. So these mice uh, were just basically living out their natural lifespan in their cages, and then we recorded their time of death. Um and then the, the second arm was more of a health span arm. So we looked at um, tests of physiological function that are known to decline with age. So we looked at both lifespan and health span in this study. That was one of the really strong suits of it um, because ultimately as humans, we don't want to just live longer, but we want more out of the years that we do live. And so for us practically, this means that the best interventions will improve uh, both longevity and also prevent this decline in physiological function that most people see with age. Right. And we all know that Mark is super into this idea of health span, right? So it's not that you'd want to just live a long time and be confined to a rocking chair on the porch, right? You want to be out there and paddleboarding and hiking and playing with your great, great grandkids and then, you know, have this long and also healthy active life. And then as Mark says, live long, drop dead, right? Exactly. You want to be healthy, healthy, healthy until the lights turn off, yes. essentially. <laughs> and so that's what you were looking at, which is really exciting because, you know, longevity in and of itself is is great and it's a good goal, but it's really, when you stop and think about it, it's not what any of us really want, right? We all want health span. Yeah. All right. And so tell me what you found. Give me some, give me some highlights. Okay. All right. Um, so as far as lifespan is concerned, um, the ketogenic diet uh, increased median lifespan compared to the control diet by 13.6%. So that's pretty good. Um, it rivals any other calorie mis- restriction mimetic that's out there. Um, and so it's, it's important to note that we're talking median lifespan and not maximum lifespan. Um, so median lifespan is an important indicator that a specific intervention is delaying the onset of mortality, even if maximum lifespan isn't changed. So again, it's this idea that we're ultimately squaring this lifespan curve. So like you said, we're living a long, healthy life, followed by a sudden fatal death, even though that kind of sounds um, brutal. It's just what we want. No, it is what we want. And just to put this in human terms briefly, like if you were expecting humans to live to age 80 and you gave them a 13.6% increase in lifespan, everyone would now be reaching age 90, essentially. So that's a huge jump in just median lifespan. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, something else to kind of point out here is that exercise has also been shown in rodents, at least, to increase median but not maximum lifespan. 
So it's slowing age specific mortality. Right. So either way you get these kind of these old people who just, you know, everyone, the stories that everyone cites about, oh, you know, great uncle Ralph drank a quart of scotch a day. I don't know how the scotch come. I don't know what the measurements are. Drank a lot of scotch a day and smoked two cigars. And he lived to be 101. And those people who just are like these crazy outliers, they skew what it looks like if you're looking at mean or average, right? So that's why we look at median because we kind of want to look at median is the 50th percentile, right? Like where can you kind of reasonably expect to fall? It's just, it takes out the people who just stubbornly refuse to die despite their bad lifestyle habits. Yep. Yep, exactly. Um, so that's, that's what we saw with, um, with lifespan. The low carbohydrate diet was somewhere in the middle of the ketogenic diet and the control. So it increased lifespan about 7%. Um, so significantly, if we're talking like, um, statistical significance, technically the, the low carbohydrate didn't differ in longevity um, compared to the ketogenic diet if we're talking the uh, statistics, but it did result, um, or I'm sorry, but it did not result, the, the low carbohydrate did not result in the preservation of physiological function that we saw with age, um, which I'll talk about in a second. But this suggests that uh, the metabolic changes accompanying the carbohydrate restriction may increase lifespan. Um, but circulating ketones might be necessary to elicit this extension of health span. Um, so when we go on to talk about the health span part, um, with the ketogenic mice in old age, we saw preservation of memory, which we tested with the novel object recognition test. Um, and as far as, you know, brain aging is concerned, um, this is kind of demonstrating the neuroprotective effects um, and properties of beta-hydroxybutyrate in ketone bodies. Um, the ketogenic diet has been shown to be helpful for neurodegenerative diseases um, and also psychiatric conditions. Um, so that's the, the, the preservation of memory um, and brain function, which is super exciting. And then we also saw preservation of motor function and coordination with age in the ketogenic mice. So we tested this using um, the wire test and the grip strength test. And um, the performance of the ketogenic mice were, were um, greater with age versus the other two diets on those two tests. And then we also looked at um, hind limb muscle mass, uh, which was greater in the old ketogenic mice. Um, and this is important because the, the gastrocnemius is predominantly type 2 muscle fibers versus something like the soleus, which is more type 1, slow, uh, slow twitch fibers. And so uh, type 2 fibers are typically the first to go with age. And so if we're seeing this preservation of the gastrocnemius, which is predominantly type 2 fibers, um, in the ketogenic mice, and that's suggesting that um, you know muscle physiology is really... Um, preserved and changed in a, in a positive way in the ketogenic mice. Yeah, it's so, I mean, it's just like all of your variables were just pointing to the fact that ketones are doing something special above and beyond the low-carb diet, right? Yeah. So how did the low-carb compare then to the control? And the control, again, in this case is the 65% carb diet, so kind of like a standard diet. Yeah, so typically for most of our tests, the, the low-carb was somewhere in the middle. Um, so not, not to just say, statistically significantly um, better or worse um, than the than the control, but um, the, the ketogenic diet was better in both of these areas, the memory and the motor function and coordination, than both the other two diets. So with the with the health span markers, basically the the low carb rivaled the um, the control. Yeah, it's so interesting. So I'm going to ask you later if you think that being in ketosis is necessary all the time to achieve these goals. Um, but let me, let's just dig a little bit deeper into the science for those of us who really are interested in what ketones are doing, right? Because we know that the keto diet has all these effects and they're really great for weight loss. But what I personally think is really exciting about ketosis is ketones role as, you know, signaling molecules in the, in the body and the way that they're going to affect health, which is basically what your study really points to and why people are so excited about it, because it really does suggest that ketones are doing something mechanistic in the body, right? So let's get a little sciencey here. And can you just describe a little bit about what you think the ketones might be doing? Sure. Yeah. So like you said, ketones have definitely been shown in the literature um, to act as signaling molecules. 
uh, both beta-hydroxybutyrate and potentially also acetoacetate. But we'll kind of focus on um, beta-hydroxybutyrate here. Um, and so uh, we found that there was um, HDAC inhibition, which is histone deacetylase inhibition, um, with the ketogenic diet. And here we're looking at um, tissues um, in the mice that were sacrificed at uh, two different points in time. Um, for the three different diets. So we looked at muscle tissue and also liver tissue. And so like I said, there was some HDAC inhibition. And basically this HDAC inhibition is blocking um, deacetylation and resulting in more more acetylation, so hyperacetylation of something called histone proteins. And ultimately what this means in plain English is that it's impacting gene expression. So we think of, you know, um, we have genetics and then we have epigenetics. So ketones are functioning to react with our genes um, to create this new epigenetic kind of profile. Um, and HDAC inhibition can upregulate FOXO proteins, which are pro-longevity, which is really exciting. Um, and we saw an upregulation in FOXO3A in our ketogenic mice. Um, and in, in yeast and flies, HDAC inhibitor, inhi inhibitors excuse me, have um, also been shown to expand lifespan. Okay. So I'm going to just admit that we're getting into like the very edge of my understanding of all these. And I, um, I'm going to actually refer people back and I'll put these in our show notes too. But Megan was recently a guest on her own podcast over at Nourish Balance Thrive with her colleague, Chris Kelly, and linked to some very short videos, which I was watching and studying up on and were really helpful. So I'm going to put those in there for people who are interested in thinking more about this and trying to dig deeper into the science. But let me just see if I can explain this in plain English and you can tell me yes or no. Okay. So Primal Blueprint uh, readers are going to be familiar with the idea of epigenetics, right? Which are these kind of extra outside the gene factors that affect whether or not genes are or are not expressed, right? So these are kind of things that can be coming in from the environment, things that are produced in your body, but basically genes can be turned on or off depending on these epigenetic factors. So far, so good? Yes. Great. And ketones in circulating in the blood serve as signaling molecules, which are like basically like messengers, right? So they're these chemicals that go around the body and they tell you your body, do this, don't do that, block this, don't do that. Is that a, a terrible summary? <laughs> no, no, that's great. That's okay. Great. And so one of the things they might do is inhibit this, um, this enzyme called HDAC, right? And in very simple terms, we know that too much HDAC activity um, basically means that your cellular, here, let's start with this. So too much HDAC activity means that your genes are not expressing, the DNA is not being expressed the way you or want, right? So that if you have too much HDAC activity, your DNA expression is suppressed, right? So your, DNA's, your DNA is not being expressed the way you want. And essentially what happens in many cases is that when your DNA is not being expressed appropriately, this can lead to metabolic states that are are um, potentially good environments for cancer to proliferate. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So basically what the short story is, ketones, high, HDAC, low, cancer, less likely. <laughs> is that yeah. A, is that a fair yeah. way to say it? Okay. Yeah, and that's, that's also, also that when HDAC is inhibited, we see this upregulation of pathways that we know to be associated with longevity. And so we may not understand exactly how everything is working together. There's a lot of very complicated moving parts here, but that your research suggests that when um, ketones are present, HDAC is inhibited, and all these other pathways that we know are associated with longevity from a large body of research, they're all now being expressed. Is that fair to say as well? Yep. Yep. That's great. Great. Okay. So, and then anything else you'd like to mention in terms of the the actual findings from your study? Because I know this was like, it was a short paper, but it was just like packed. It was like, this is great. And this is happening. And we learned this. And it was just, I was reading it going, okay, I'm going to read this seven more times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We did have to kind of pack a lot of stuff in there. Um, and uh, I guess one other thing I do want to say, actually two more things, um, as far as like the... Um, the, the metabolic signaling properties that we were looking at. Um, so we did see um, uh, a tissue-dependent manner of um, mTOR signaling. And so mTOR is um, a pathway that has been implicated in longevity research. Um, 
And a lot of times it's, it's important because some people say, okay, we just want to suppress mTOR for longevity, but really we have to think of what tissues that mTOR is being suppressed in. Because if, t- if mTOR is suppressed in say the muscle tissue, then that's going to be not so great for longevity because that might promote sarcopenia versus suppressing mTOR in say the liver might be a good thing. Um, and so for us, we actually found that in the ketogenic mice, um, mTOR signaling was up in muscle and actually down in liver. So that is kind of, you're getting the best of both worlds there. Um, and so there's still kind of a lack of understanding about this trade-off between lower mTOR for longevity purposes and then promoting it for, um, you know, skeletal muscle. Um, but as far as, you know, kind of the big picture that we saw, um, it looked like, you know, it, there was, um, there was protective mTOR in, in muscle. And then, um, it was, it was less in the liver. Um, and then the other thing to just briefly mention, you pointed to, uh, the, the idea of cancer before. Um, and we saw P53, which is a tumor suppressor protein. We saw that hyper acetylated in the ketogenic mice. Um, and so this kind of correlates to the fact that we also saw less cancer, upon sacrifice of the mice as well. Um, so there's something going on with, with the ketogenic diet and circulating ketones and cancer. And there's a lot of, um, a lot of interest right now in how the ketogenic diet can be a good, um, kind of complementary therapy, um, for traditional, uh, cancer chemotherapy. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot more to be determined, but, um, cancer is another interesting piece of this puzzle as well. Right. Yeah. It just seems like, as you said, there's a ton of research to be done still. And there are so many pieces of this puzzle and we're, it's kind of like, we know a little about a lot of things, right? Is that how it feels to me? It's like, we have a, we have an understanding about a lot of things, but there's still so many nuances we're trying to untangle with research. And by we, I mean, people who are actually doing the research. Um <laughs> But that ketones seem to play a role in all these different pathways that basically promote health in a variety of different ways, right? And so, you know, all these terms are getting thrown around and things that uh, you might be have heard about before if you have read Primal Blueprint or listened to the podcast, you know, mTOR and P53 and HDAC and FOXO and all these all these variables and puzzle pieces that come together. But what it really seems to be is that ketones in and of themselves work in harmony or in tangent or affect all these other types of, you know, pathways in a way that promotes health and longevity. And that's kind of like the big picture we see right now. And what scientists are really working on doing is understanding like the exact mechanisms by which that happens. Is that a fair summary? Yep. I think that's great. Cool. So um, I, one of the other reasons I was really excited to have you on the show was just because I know that you are really passionate about scientific literacy and, you know, one of the things that happens, of course, with scientific research and it, you know, it did happen with your paper, right, is that the popular media picks it up and it (laughs) spreads and that sometimes the popular media doesn't quite understand the paper and this didn't happen with yours, but it does happen with some research or maybe it did. I didn't see it. Oh, it did. did? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it's just, you know, because people get excited and, you know, and it is, your paper is incredibly exciting and it points to all these really, you know, thrilling potential benefits of just, you know, eating a ketogenic diet. But at the same time, you know, from a scientific perspective, you really need to be um, more conservative in the types of, of, conclusions you draw from any one or maybe even any 10 or 15 papers, right? So let's talk, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about kind of the state of the current knowledge about the ketogenic diet. And then even more generally, you know, when you see a paper out there and like we can use your paper as an example or a different paper, um, you know, when you see a paper out there and you see it being reported in the, in the popular media, you know, how do how does the average lay person kind of understand it? So let's start with the question of, first of all, let's just kind of summarize the current state of knowledge and research in the keto diet, because it feels like keto is like this brand new thing on the scene and everyone's doing it and everyone knows about it. But really, scientists have, and, you know, doctors have known about the ketogenic diet for 100 years now. You know, the, the earliest papers that I know of came out in the 1920s, right? Looking at the ketogenic diet as a treatment for childhood epilepsy and uncontrolled seizures. So, um, 
and then it seems like there's maybe like a, a kind of a lull in research and it came back in the 70s and now it's like back with a, this huge bang. So what do you think the kind of current state of like real scientific understanding is about keto? Like what do we know? What do we not know? What's coming down the pipeline as the kind of the most exciting potential things besides your paper, which is number one, but what are the kind of ex- current exciting areas and topics of research and I'd really like to know like what we what you think needs a lot more attention from researchers right now. Yeah, okay. So, um as far as gosh, what what we know, I, I don't want to say that we know for sure anything because science is kind of this it, it's this un, ever unfolding kind of, you know, we we think we know something and then we make another hypothesis and then our other hypothesis was disproven and then we we just kind of it's it's always evolving. Um But what I can say is, you know, we do know about the efficacy of the ketogenic diet for, um, for epilepsy, um, treatment resistant epilepsy specifically. Um, and then there's also recently been kind of this interest in the ketogenic diet for neurodegenerative, degenerative, um, conditions, also psychiatric diseases, um, there's been a lot recently about um, ketogenic diet for endurance performance. So there was the faster study that um, looked at endurance athletes um, eating either a high carb or ketogenic diet. And then recently, there's also been kind of this explosion around um, exogenous ketones, especially for athletic performance. Um, so there's that as well. Um, like I mentioned before, cancer is another area, and then also kind of metabolic syndrome. Um, Verda Health is a is a company, an online company that's doing a lot of um, great research um, and basically health coaching, um, working with people um, with metabolic syndrome um, and implementing a ketogenic diet, and they're getting great results with that. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, a broad. Um, way to say this is kind of what people are interested in right now. Um, and this is what we're looking at as far as the ketogenic diet is concerned. Um, but you know, there's still a lot more, um, questions than answers at this point. It does seem like a lot of the current research is looking at exogenous ketones and not Mm -hmm. nutritional ketosis per se. And I'm, I'm, it's interesting to me because Realistically, I mean, the key, I'm 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 on the fence about whether or not I think the ketogenic diet, right, and nutritional ketosis is easier or harder, right? I mean, obviously, it's easier to just take a powder and have ketones floating around, but at the same time, it seems to me, and I guess my personal bias is that I'd rather see people doing, you know, for general health, not for maybe like athletic performance, but for general health, it seems like nutritional ketosis is kind of the way to go because it has all these other benefits besides just having ketones in your body, which of course, as we know, is special in and of itself. But I don't know how much work is being done with the diet right now. Do you agree that it feels like so much is being done with exogenous ketones? Who's doing work on on the ketogenic diet right now? Yeah. So so I think a lot um, more more of the clinicians, I think, are more interested in, in the diet per se. And then um, as far as the exogenous ketones, those are I think getting a lot more of the press, um, especially in the kind of sports performance arena. Uh, I completely agree with you that, you know, for, for the majority of the people, um, nutritional ketosis is probably going to be, um, the, the best. Uh, and I, but I do think that exogenous ketones can have a time and place. Um, but they, they shouldn't be used, you know, as a scapegoat for people to eat a ton of carbs and then kick themselves into ketosis whenever they feel like it. Right. I agree. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited about exogenous ketones and the, you know, their applications for endurance athletes and maybe as, you know, like you said, like an adjunct therapy for cancer or just a lot of things. But I'm, I'm afraid that the way that they're being framed in the popular media right now is like the next perfect diet pill. Right. Mm-hmm. And that that's problematic to me. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree. So you mentioned the FASTER study and Verda Health, and those are both um, projects from Volick and Finney's, Jeff Volick and Steve Finney's lab. And um, Steve Finney was at Davis, right? So did you get to work with him at all, or were you? did you get your paths not really cross? 
No, our paths unfortunately didn't cross. Um, he left oh, bummer, man. quite a while, I think, before I got there, or at least I got to the graduate program. Um, so he's he's definitely a great guy. Um, I really respect him. Um, but unfortunately, I haven't met him. So maybe someday I will. Well, we will link, I'm going to put a link to the Faster Study and to Verta Health and to all the other things that Megan's mentioning in the show notes, because um, what they're doing at Verta is also incredibly exciting. Um, it's a healthcare company that's trying to reverse type 2 diabetes through m- largely dietary and lifestyle interventions, including, um, I don't know that they have all their patients on a ketogenic diet, but certainly I know that they're using carbohydrate restriction and ketogenic for a lot of their patients. Um, and they're having just incredible results kind of outside the mainstream medical model, but not completely outside the mainstream medical model. So it's this blending of 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 taking patients and then asking ab- above and beyond what we think we know about diabetes, can we truly cure diabetes with lifestyle and dietary interventions? And so far, I have to say, man, their their initial findings say, yes, you really can. It's, yeah. it's so exciting. It really is. Yep. So where would you like to see there be more research then with regard to the ketogenic diet? Oh gosh. Um, do you have like an hour for me to talk about this? <laughs> I do. Lay it on me. Um, so, kind of like I like I alluded to before, the thing about research as a whole is that it tends to create more questions than it does answers, um, which is great because, you know, researchers and academics will never be out of jobs. There will always be things to, to research and, and discover. Um, but specifically in the context of um, the ketogenic diet, a couple like areas I think that are interesting um, and that need more attention are the effects of ketone bodies on our genetics. So we we kind of talked about this epigenetic effect, but we really have touched the tip of the iceberg on that. Um, So more about that and also more about the mechanisms by which ketones are working to elicit their effects. Um, So again, we talked about some like HDAC inhibition and suppression of mTOR signaling potentially, um, but there are certainly many, many more areas um, that have yet to be discovered. Um, and then also, you know, as far as humans are concerned, and I mean, I guess rodents as well, um, the, the responses of men versus women and how, how they differ um, to the ketogenic diet. Um, yeah, I mean, that's obviously a huge topic just in the, in the popular media and for actual people who are practicing the ketogenic diet is this question of, of men versus women. And is it better for men? Is it harder for women? You know, that's what you hear a lot, but honestly, with it comes to humans, so much of the evidence is still very anecdotal and it's kind of, it's so hard to disentangle what's really happening. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Completely agree. Um, and then just a couple other areas, um, that I think are interesting is how different fat sources can play into the efficacy of the diet. So if you're getting, you know, the majority of your fat from saturated fat versus the majority of your fat from monounsaturated or poly, um, you know, that can definitely, um, change physiology as well. Um, also the impact of cyclical versus, um, more of a sustained ketogenic diet is interesting. Um, and then finally, um, how fasting induced ketosis and then nutritional ketosis, starvation ketosis, and then supplement driven ketosis, um, differ in their physiological consequences. So we know that there are different ways that you can force yourself into ketosis. Um, and so how are those different, different from each other? Yeah, those are all such great questions. It makes me want to go back into academia and find myself a lab and start doing research. But I mean, but realistically, like all this research takes so much time, right? And there's so many questions and there's so many different ways that you could iterate a study, right? Um, so I'm going to just take a, like a little bit of a step back and say, like, do you, you personally feel comfortable right now, though, of course, with your work at Nourish Balance Thrive? recommending a low carb or ketogenic diet for at least some of your athletes and, um, you know, practicing it in your own life, you said. So kind of what do you think is the current best practice in terms of someone who's interested, like not talking about just, you know, treating a specific health problem, because that's obviously outside the scope of what we can do here. But like, just if someone's like, I've heard a ketogenic diet's really healthy. I'm interested in maybe tapping into some of those benefits. Maybe I'd like to lose 15 pounds, you know, whatever. Um, kind of what do you think the current best practice is in terms of, of recommending a ketogenic diet? So I think definitely context is really important. So some of the people that I work with at MBT, um, you know, they already fall into the kind of 
overtraining, underfueling athlete who really just needs more carbs. Um, and then some people, you know, if, if their goal is to, you know, either increase, um, the, the, their ability to use fat as fuel for endurance exercise, or even, you know, if they want to drop, um, some weight, sometimes ketogenic diet can be helpful for that. Um, insulin resistance, all of that kind of thing. Um, then there's definitely is a time and a place. And I would say, you know, kind of following this, this whole food diet template that we talk about, you know, in, in the paleo primal ancestral community is a great starting place. Um, and then, you know, you can create the, your own ketogenic diet from that template just by kind of manipulating macronutrients. Um, but I think that something that you, you don't want to be, um, or I guess you, you want to be cognizant of is falling into this kind of bacon and butter trap, um, and create, you know, creating your diet to revolve around, um, you know, just, um, more and more processed foods and, and processed fats. Um, so you can definitely eat a ketogenic diet that has plenty of the low carb polyphenol rich plant matter, um, you know, and, and, uh, kind of make it a healthier ketogenic diet that way. And so I think that's where, um, Mark's new book and Brad's new book, um, really can, can play a role and come in and help people. Right. And I'm going to take this opportunity to plug our keto reset diet, Facebook group. Um, if you have read the book, or if you're curious about the book, come find us on Facebook, just Google, um, keto reset group, and you'll see the cover of the book. And if you come in there, you'll see that 80% of our discussion is involving eat more vegetables. How many vegetables are you eating? Are you eating enough vegetables? You should eat more vegetables. Try a big ass salad. <laughs> because I, I totally agree that if you center your food around real food and then you can vary your macros up and down and that's great. But the key is really about the types of food you're eating. And then the macros are kind of like the icing on the cake that you're allowed to play with. But that that's the macros are not the thing as much as the food. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay, so I would hate to um, miss the opportunity to have you on here since you are a person who's incredibly well-versed in research. I'd like to talk about, you know, wrapping up our discussion about the ketogenic diet. And one of the things that I hear a lot when I'm, you know, out in the, in the popular media world and we're talking about the ketogenic diet and people are getting really excited is like, oh, well, that study was conducted on mice. So... It doesn't, it doesn't count, right? <laughs> so um, can you just give us a little bit of research 101 and just, you know, explain to us why nutritional research is so difficult in the first place, right? And, you know, we know a lot of the, the current scientific, um, or I guess maybe the current recommendations, right? Conventional wisdom recommendations are based on epidemiological studies. And on the other hand, a lot of the current ketogenic uh, diet research is being done on animal models. And so- of what are the choices that researchers make around that? And what do we, what can we really know from using animal model research and how can we extrapolate it to humans? Yeah. Okay. So this can be a little bit of a rabbit hole. So pull me back if, if you need to. Um, okay. So as far as why nutritional research is so difficult, um, there are a lot of reasons. I'll just touch on a few here. Um, at least in, in the human realm, adherence is hard. Um, diet recalls are hard. Um, there's always kind of this issue of, um, past dogma and funding that can also be, um, uh, you know, an issue, um, and a kind of, kind of a conflict of interest there. And then, um, epidemiological studies are great, um, but they can't show us causality. Um, and then on the other hand, um, randomized control trials can manipulate one variable. Um, but our lives are really so much more complex. Um, and so we have variables changing day to day. Um, our hormones are fluctuating, our, our stress levels are fluctuating. Um, so in the lab, you know, you're very tightly controlling one variable. Um, but that's not, that's not how we live day to day. Um, we're, we're not mice in cages basically. Um, and there's also a lot of individual variability and genetic differences. So, um, you know, we can, we can talk about how, uh, researchers typically 
if they're doing like a very controlled study, they're choosing one specific population um, to to keep those variables at a limit. Um, but when we then try to go extrapolating um, the results of that study to the general population, that can really be a problem. Right. So there's always this trade-off between having something that has this real-world validity, right? So what are people actually eating out in the real worlds when they're you know, living their lives and, and all the other variables are not controlled versus having the control of the lab study where you can really manipulate one variable, but basically everything else about the setup of the study is artificial. Yeah. Right. And you can't have both, right? You can't have completely real world. People are out there living their lives and also control the variables you want to control, which is why we really need both. Right. So the idea from, for science is never to take one study and run with it. It's to take a body of research and look to see what the kind of the conclusions are as a whole, right? Yeah. And then continue to ask questions. Yeah. So the the main benefit of doing the research with mice, of course, is that you have a lot of experimental control. Yeah, exactly. And in, in the context of kind of the study that we're talking about today um, that my colleagues and I did, uh, longevity studies will probably only ever be possible in animals. Um, about the most invasive thing, you know, you can do to a human is maybe take a tissue biopsy or something. Um, but for animals, when you sacrifice them, you can get a lot of more information out of their tissues. Um, and then of course they, they live a shorter amount of time. So you, you're able to do studies such as longevity studies. Um, otherwise for humans, you know, when we're looking at longevity, a lot of what we have is epidemiological evidence. Um, and then kind of on the, if, if we're going even even more, um, I guess, reductionist than animal models, and we move to cell models, cell models are really great to help us elucidate mechanisms that would otherwise be impossible in um, a living person or even animal. But then again, you're looking at one cell in a very tightly controlled environment in the lab. Um, so there's that as well. Um, and as far as, I guess, extrapolating results, um, from animal studies into what they mean for humans, it really does largely depend on the context of the study. Um, for example, in in the study again that, that we're talking about today, um, y- you can't just say that you know if you go on a ketogenic diet when you're in middle age, then you're going to live longer and healthier. Um, there's so many more variables, like like we already discussed, um, and also. Um, one, one last thing I'll say about the uh, animal research is that um, diet quality is really important. So I can assure you that nobody in the primal community would want to go anywhere near what the mice were eating in the lab. So their diets are basically like maltodextrin and soybean oil um, and casein and food coloring. And that's not what, you know, people eat in everyday life. Um, so, you know, at a fundamental level for this aging study, humans and mice do age in a similar way, um, our organs become less efficient and we get this kind of loss of physiological function. Um, so there is some things we can glean from the animal studies, but ultimately, um, you know, we really do need human studies in a variety of populations to really determine any outcomes, nutrition or otherwise, um, for, for people. Right. But that is a key point that mice physiologically age in a manner that's similar to humans. So, you know, I know a lot of people have this this instinct to just kind of dismiss animal studies out of hand, but that's not fair because there is this physiological similarity, although there are many differences as well. But the point of the animal research is to point to important questions to then extend into human models, right? Exactly. Yeah, where we can. And where we can't, then the animal models will help us understand things at a very fundamental level. Um, and then we can, you know... It, kind of extend the research from there. Right. Like, so yes, mice are not humans, obviously, but, you know, HDAC is an important signaling enzyme in mice and it is in humans as well. So if we can understand something about how ketones work with regard to HDAC inhibition in mice, then that's a very reasonable hypothesis to then pursue in terms of a human, right? Yep. I agree. Awesome. And I think that, you know, in terms of of understanding the research, again, like we would just always caution people, don't put all your eggs in one studies basket, right? But neither should we, you know, neither should we maybe pick apart any one study because no study is ever meant to stand alone. 
Although yours is very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so I have taken up a lot of your time, so I'd like to just ask you one final question, getting back to what you said about you know the ancestral health model and the whole foods and you know kind of maybe like a hierarchy of like what's most important. So focus on this and then do this and then do this, you know and if if we are talking, of course, about wanting to extend health span in humans, like for each of us, so you know each of us now, walking away from the podcast and, you know, what are kind of the actionable items we can get from listening to you and I chat at the end of the day, you know, what are you going to tell people who are thinking about adopting a ketogenic diet for themselves? Like what factors should they be thinking about? How do they decide if it's right for them? And kind of, you know, in terms of, again, the hierarchy of importance in terms of, of caring about your macros, where does the ketogenic diet fall in terms of general lifestyle type stuff? Yeah. So as far as, you know, who should try the ketogenic diet and kind of where to start, I think that, um, you know, it's a great diet to experiment with. And I think that for most people, um, kind of, you know, you can slowly transition into dropping the carbs and then kind of exploring the state of metabolic ketosis. Um, and then kind of, you know, going in and out every once in a while, you know, you don't have to always stay stagnant in one place. One thing that, you know, I've learned throughout my journey is that the diet and lifestyle and exercise and all of that that works for you today probably won't be what works for you five, 10 years down the road. Um, so that's really important to, to consider. And then as far as like, you know, where diet and macros fall into the overall hierarchy of things that we could, should consider for our health, you know, diet is absolutely critical. Um, I, I am all about, you know, the, the kind of ancestral diet and lifestyle health plan or health template, I suppose. Um, however, I oftentimes see way too many people wanting to micromanage the details of their diet. So, you know, people are asking what is the exact optimal level of blood ketones that I should have. Um, and things like, well, those extra five grams of protein ultimately knock me out of ketosis. And ironically, the stress that those questions can sometimes cause might be the thing that's actually keeping you out of ketosis in the first place. (laughs) Um, and so I I do want to kind of end on this idea that there are so many other important aspects to our health that we should really consider, um, apart from diet. So things like sleep and social connection and sunshine and stress management and having a purpose in life, all of these things, um, kind of come together to really foster optimal health, peak performance, overall happiness. Um, so it's not just about the diet. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not even going to add anything to that because you just said everything I would say, you um, summarized it perfectly. So is there anything else you'd like to add or anything you'd like to point people to? I don't think so. Um, I would encourage people to head over to Nourish, Balance, Thrive if they want to um, learn more about us and about our program. Um, And I think that's about it. It was great to talk to you today. You too. And yes, I definitely like Point people over to Nourish, Balance, Thrive. If you're interested in what they're doing, there's a, is it, you call it the seven minute assessment, seven minute analysis. Analysis, yeah. Analysis, okay. So there's like a little test you can take to see if, you know, you might be interested in working with the Nourish, Balance, Thrive team. They have a blog over there that Megan's been writing for. And Megan, you said you're going to be writing a series related to this whole question of lifestyle and how it affects your dietary um, success, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, it's kind of, um, a series on basically why your ketogenic diet isn't working. So, so far we have one, uh, um, on overtraining and under eating. Um, there's going to be one on stress, one on, um, circadian rhythm and sleep. So th- there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, these, these lifestyle aspects that we, you know, just briefly touched on at the end, um, that if you're interested in diving a little bit more, bit more into, then, um, more to come on the blog at Nourish Balance Thrive. Okay. And I will link to that. And I definitely encourage people to read that because I could not be in more agreement that the lifestyle, you know, the lifestyle choices you make are a critical component of your overall dietary success. So I will be linking to those. And also let me again, put in a plug for our Facebook group, because as Megan's blog posts come up, I will be linking them in our Facebook group, because like I said, I'm a huge fan of what they're doing over there. And again, Megan, congratulations on this paper. 
and all the work you guys are doing at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. I just could not be more excited for you and all of your successes. So it's wonderful. And again, listeners, thank you for spending your time with us today on the Primal Blueprint podcast. And as always, for letting me be your backseat driver on the road to health. And I will talk to you later. Thank you. Hi, it's Brad Kearns to tell you about Paleo Cooking Bootcamp. Oh, what fun. Finally, you have a chance to learn from a real professional about intentional cooking, where you maximize the efficiency of your time, dedicate two hours on the weekend to cooking, and Chef Katie French, the earthivore, will take you through this incredible whirlwind cooking session where you cook enough in two hours to have ready-made delicious paleo approved meals for the entire week paleocookingbootcamp.com this is a digital version of her award-winning course that was given to students live in the bay area and now wherever you are whatever you're doing you can have a step-by-step approach that makes it easy to succeed in the kitchen even if you're not a big foodie even if you're a little intimidated about doing recipes just push the play button and Katie will take you through the cooking course. It's a two-hour boot camp every weekend designed to last for a month and you will be dialed with your paleo meals. Just open up that refrigerator door. Imagine having all these delicious snacks and breakfast items, dinner entrees, dessert treats even. And let me tell you, I was on the set watching this whole production. It is the real deal. The food is absolutely amazing and you will be surprised what you can accomplish in the kitchen with an intentional cooking method. There's no other course like this found in the world. We looked, believe me. So check out paleocookingbootcamp.com and enroll today.